October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This is The Awakening, Part 1. Last time, we took a tour around the world to see how things were going in Adventist land. We talked about how the church was doing financially in the 1950s, how it was growing like crazy. We looked at Adventism in Australia, Taiwan, Africa, South America, Central America, and Europe. Whew. Long story short, life was good. Now, let's ruin it all. I would argue that it was precisely at the height of the institutional church's success that the cracks began to be seen. You see, people went to church more in the aftermath of the Second World War, at least in the United States. President Eisenhower, a war hero, actually got baptized while in office. The phrase, under God, in the Pledge of Allegiance was added in 1954. Billy Graham was drawing record crowds across the country in a way no Christian evangelist had done before. It was during the war that this idea of Judeo-Christian values emerged, though its roots probably went back to the First World War when a Jewish army chaplain found himself holding up a cross for a dying Catholic and reading the Bible to Protestants. Yet the war, like Pandora's Jar, also released some other forces into the world which were not so easily discerned. If you read some of the accounts of Holocaust survivors, you might notice that some people became less religious through the war, not more religious. And this raised questions about the goodness of God that were difficult to answer. An increasingly global conception of the social and economic order also introduced a new affluence and new ideas about how to live which churches would find hard to compete with. Those who had their ear to the ground could hear these forces tunneling away under the foundations. Movements against colonialism led to missionaries being scrutinized and not merely praised. Calls for social and racial justice collided with old privileges and assumptions about the world. And at first, all of this happened here and there, in small pockets, but uncomfortable questions were being asked, and they weren't going away. Now, institutions like churches could throw their weight around and demand compliance. But they could only play that card so many times. Because this old wave of modernism, it had been fended off with fundamentalism, and that was somewhat successful. But after World War II, that wave grew and became a tsunami. Our trouble begins in Australia, because where else is it going to begin? In 1956, Pastor Drain, from northern New Zealand, found himself at odds with Francis Clifford, the new division president. Although, technically, he was the Australasian Inter-Union Conference president, a new entity that was created for very boring reasons, so I'll just keep calling him the division president. Now, it seems that Drain had been, in Clifford's view, undermining the sanctuary doctrine and Ellen White, because of course he was. In truth, it was a bit more complicated than that. There was one time when Drain actually claimed that the church manual had been changed to minimize Ellen White's authority, and he was against that. But things snowballed from there. 
In good old Adventist fashion, a committee had been formed to hear Pastor Drain and render judgment on his case. But Clifford felt that the Northern New Zealand Conference president, a man named Robert Grave, had, quote, smoothed things over without really dealing with the issue, end quote. The problem, as Clifford saw, was that Grave sympathized with Drain. You see, Grave had been the Queensland Conference president the year before when, at a camp meeting, he preached on the sinless nature of Jesus and justification by faith. And Grave's thoughts on these subjects put him far out in advance of his membership. Grave believed that Jesus had a pre-fallen nature, which I think is exactly what Froome, Anderson, and Reed were thinking and talking about during the Adventist Evangelical Conferences, and we all know how well QOD went for those three men. And aside from this pre-fallen nature of Christ, Grave also taught that Adventists could have assurance of their forgiveness as soon as they accepted Jesus. And this too cut across the grain of conservative Adventism because it seemed to undermine the need to keep the Sabbath or to pursue the perfection of your character before the second coming. Some of Graves' questions were, in fact, truly interesting. In a letter to Roy Allen Anderson, he asked, quote, If salvation is based on faith and faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, then why is it in the investigative judgment the cases of all professing Christians are based upon works and works alone? End quote. One of Clifford's men wrote Grave and ordered him not to speak of these topics again, with Grave apparently refusing to reply. The whole affair became hopelessly complex. At another camp meeting, the Committee on Pastoral Credentials decided not to renew the credentials for Drain, effectively firing him as a minister. But owing to the public nature of the camp meeting, they reversed course and decided they would just revisit the idea of taking his credentials later, perhaps in a more quiet way. Church leaders decided then to meet with Drain back in New Zealand in a last-ditch effort to salvage his ministry. Meanwhile, letters were trickling in from New Zealand complaining of Grave and these strange things he was apparently still teaching. Grave defended himself in a letter to Clifford, who found his tone rude. Grave was convinced that his union president, as well as Australia's most prominent export, Roy Allen Anderson, would back him up. Grave had been around enough to know how this works. It's easy to deal with a dissenter who doesn't have friends, especially friends in high places. So Grave was letting his division president know that he had friends in high places and he wouldn't be easy to silence. Francis Clifford decided to appeal to the General Conference for reinforcements, fearing that this could get ugly. Graves' theology wasn't unique in and of itself, but his situation was interesting. With his finger on the pulse of what was going on with the evangelicals and the Adventists, Grave believed that his position on the nature of Christ, which was at odds with most believers in Australia, I would guess, was about to become the official church position. He knew from Roy Allen Anderson that the trio of Adventist negotiators agreed with him and would include their view in whatever official statement was to come from these meetings with the evangelicals. So Graves' position with Clifford was basically, you just wait and see, and you'll see that I'm right. Clifford was flummoxed about how to respond to that. Were GC leaders changing what he believed to be the official position of the church on the nature of Christ? Did Grave know something that he didn't? 
and it probably irritated Clifford that Roy Allen Anderson had been writing this stuff to a lowly conference president and not to him. When it came time for Drain's trial, five ordained pastors were tasked to meet with him over three days, finding that he was, in the words of Clifford, quote, entirely off the track with regard to the spirit of prophecy in the investigative judgment. As far as he is concerned, there is no investigative judgment, and the year 1844 has no significance. Sister White is merely one of many commentators. Her writings contain many erroneous errors, end quote. Other non-erroneous errors? Needless to say, Drain was drained of his credentials. That didn't stop him from pointing the finger at Grave and saying, if you take me down, you're going to have to take him down too, to which I can only imagine Grave would reply, thanks a lot, buddy. Robert Grave, seizing the occasion of his boss's being in his office, was determined to clear his name here and now. He pulled out a list of Walter Barton's questions for the Adventists and the answers which Froome had written, as if this was proof that, see, the church is changing and I'm right. Clifford responded that he wasn't impressed, he had the same list of questions and answers from Roy Allen Anderson, and that it didn't prove anything. Grave doubled down by saying that Roy Allen Anderson had told him that a change of beliefs was about to be announced, though perhaps not in those exact words. But it was not the time or the place for this conversation. Grave would have to wait his turn. Theologically, Drain and Grave were not on the same page, but... Look, on a personal note, Clifford doesn't strike me as an imaginative theologian who might appreciate theological nuance. He was an administrator, through and through, although even in this role, he doesn't seem to be completely at ease. Because over and over in his letters to the GC president, Ruben Figure, Clifford mentions that he had recommended to his colleagues at the division that they needed some reinforcements from the GC. They needed somebody from the GC to be president at these meetings but that his colleagues at the division thought that they could handle it themselves without bothering the GC. Now, the fact that Clifford keeps mentioning this in his letters to Figure suggests that these were really cries for help. It's like saying, hey, I felt like we needed your help, but my coworkers don't think we need your help. Why would you tell your boss that if you're not secretly hoping that he will come and help? Come May of 1956, Clifford was updating Figure weekly on how things were going with Grave. Learning that Figure was going to be in Singapore, Clifford invited his boss to stop by in hopes of benefiting from his counsel, as he put it. Figure didn't stop to see him. I think it's safe to say that Clifford didn't feel equal to the task, which, to be fair, is not an easy one. Meanwhile, Grave continued to write to Roy Ellen Anderson for support. I am to face a supreme test, he said in one letter. Quote, F.G. Clifford is determined to justify his bigoted and intolerant course and eliminate every man who refuses to do him homage administratively, theologically, and in every other way, end quote. As you can tell, Graves' language, although in private, was explosive. Even as Roy Allen Anderson, Froome, and Reed were writing their answers to Martin and Barnhouse, there were questions over what this meant for Adventism. The evangelicals, of course, saw it as Adventism changing their beliefs. They've made a great about-face, and now they're one of us. Anderson said they were only clarifying their beliefs, not changing them. Clifford, if you can believe Grave, explained away the answers which would eventually 
become a part of QOD by claiming that, quote, you men, meaning Anderson, Froome, and Reed, defeated Dr. Martin by use of clever terminology, end quote. In other words, these answers didn't mean anything. So which was it? Did Adventist theology change? Was it only being explained differently? Or was it, as Clifford and other fundamentalists believed, all just a ruse to deceive the evangelicals? Well, my friends, we have a seven-part series on questions on doctrine, and you can go back and listen to those and judge for yourself. Anderson understood that some saw him as meddling in this case. I mean, how could you not see it that way? Anderson recounts how in his last trip to Australia, he and Grave had taken a walk together where he shared his views on the nature of Christ. Anderson knew that the larger church wasn't ready for his views on the nature of Christ, but by confiding in a man like Grave, who had no problem, it seems, stirring the pot, he was enabling this controversy. Though Anderson didn't want to see any controversy, he nevertheless would be writing to Grave, letting him know what was going on in the inner circle with the negotiations with the evangelicals and tell him about this great change or great clarification that was impending in Adventism, how historic this event was, and that Grave only needed to wait just a few more months before some grand revelation of their progress with the evangelicals. Now, for somebody like Grave, he couldn't resist getting ahead of that a little bit. And so Anderson ended up arming Grave, gave him the rhetorical ammunition he needed to defend himself, which probably exacerbated this crisis a little bit longer than it needed to. Anderson was aware of how his letters were being used in the argument by both sides, by the way, because he wrote to the division executive secretary that Grave, quote, is a sincere Christian, but it would appear he is not always as wise as he might be, end quote. Nevertheless, Anderson's next line read, quote, some of the things exercising his mind, however, are very important, and someday in the near future, we as a denomination might be prepared to accept them, at least in part, end quote. Is it any wonder that Grave felt encouraged to ignore Clifford's warning to stop preaching these things? Why would Grave stop now? Anderson was indicating to the division that at least some of Grave's ideas were very important and that the world church might come to accept them soon. Now, to be sure, Anderson didn't know all of the details. I don't get the impression from these letters that he knew everything Grave was saying. But that didn't stop him from interjecting himself into this controversy because, it seems, of his personal feelings toward Grave. But also because his work with the evangelicals seemed to be at stake. The last thing Anderson wanted was for Clifford to conclude that Froome and company were really changing church beliefs and to sound the alarm. That would have sabotaged everything they had built with Martin and Barnhouse. So because Anderson had sent these questions and answers to Grave, and now Grave was finding himself under scrutiny, he had to bring Clifford into his inner circle as well by sending him the questions and answers. That way, Clifford could be reassured that Froome and company were not up to some nefarious purpose, but this also meant that the circle of people who were in the know had to get bigger, which involves greater risk that things will leak out before Anderson was ready. So, like I said, this was a difficult balancing act, but 
It was a difficulty he brought upon himself by sending the questions and answers to Grave in the first place. In his letter to the division secretary, Anderson fretted that Graves' trial wasn't wise. As Anderson put it rather cryptically, quote, There are so many things related to this problem and that a hearing of that nature would doubtless involve a pronouncement of certain things that the denomination is supposed to stand for might lead in the end to unfortunate embarrassment. It might have far-reaching repercussions which would not be helpful to the men involved. End quote. That was a lot of words. What? Basically, Anderson feared that information about the Adventist Evangelical Conferences would get out in the trial. Perhaps Grave would try to use the questions and answers as proof, and perhaps Clifford and other church leaders would respond by denouncing those answers as heresy, and that might very well kill the relationship with Martin and Barnhouse, or at least sabotage Anderson's reputation with them. What's more, if Clifford and the brethren came out too strongly against Grave, they might indeed be embarrassed when Questions on Doctrine comes out and vindicates Grave, at least on the view of the nature of Christ. So Anderson, for purely political reasons, doesn't want to see Grave on trial. But Grave's trial happened anyway. And in it, he presented three papers, 62 pages in all, and in the words of Clifford, seemed to soften his positions by the end. But when Grave invoked Roy Allen Anderson, his inquisitors were ready with a sneer, at least one of them was, quote, Brother Anderson is not the GC. Ooh. Apparently, they also claimed that Anderson had, quote, sold out to the Pope, end quote, which was a serious rhetorical charge in Adventism, because Anderson had apparently once said that the Pope was a gentleman. That's a crime, I guess. Graves' positions was about more than the nature of Christ, of course. He apparently believed that Ellen White had what he or somebody was called a progressive revelation, meaning, quote, her earlier works contain only a limited concept of certain fundamental truths of salvation, end quote. In other words, when reading Ellen White, we ought to consider her later writings as more complete than her earlier writings. This was certainly a progressive and novel way of viewing Ellen White, and it foreshadows the challenges Adventists would increasingly face in the years to come over exactly how her inspiration worked. And, my friends, the trial went as you might expect. Nevertheless, Grave wanted a hearing by the General Conference. Clifford hit the brakes on that. This trial had dealt with Graves' theological views, but Clifford had problems with the way Grave, as conference president, had handled all of this, he shouldn't have gone around saying things that upset church members. A conference president should have more sense than that. Besides, there is a church hierarchy you have to work your way up before you can be heard by the GC. Grave shot a quick telegram to Roy Allen Anderson that read, quote, Likely lose leadership and credentials. Stop. Am urged to appeal GC. Stop. Do you consider any value proceeding? Stop. Abide your advice. Anderson balked at giving any kind of useful advice over a telegram and urged him to appeal up the chain of command step by step without doing anything rash. He followed it up with a letter. Quote, I have been trying to read between the lines. I find myself in a real dilemma. End quote. Well, that he was. However progressive Anderson might have been on the nature of Christ, he was a company man and wouldn't subvert the duly elected church leaders in Australia. This meant that Anderson was simultaneously pushing for Graves' view of the nature of Christ to Martin and Barnhouse, 
but also tacitly supporting the church in Australia as it prosecuted Grave for those same views. To be sure, the situation with Grave was a lot more than just that one issue, and it's unlikely that Anderson would have sided with Grave on all of the issues. But it was a pretzel of a problem, because Grave is writing to Anderson at the GC for support, all the while Clifford is doing the same thing in writing to Figure. Both sides believe they had GC support. And as Grave was appealing to Anderson, the Trans-Tasman Union, this was uh, Graves's immediate union that he was a part of, recommended to the Northern New Zealand Conference that Grave be granted a three-month leave of absence. A new conference president was elected in his absence, and it was clear that Grave was never getting his old job back. Grave began contacting business people until he found a job as a manager at a honey factory. Things would take a sour turn, however, because, as we talked about in the last episode, seven months later, Figure got a shock when he found out that Grave had written to Donald Gray Barnhouse to claim he had been fired because of his belief in the deity of Christ and righteousness by faith, so Avenus obviously cannot be good evangelicals, can they? What's up with all these Avenus getting upset and contacting Barnhouse? As I mentioned in the last episode, Figure would lament, quote, I am afraid there must be something the matter with the man mentally. End quote. Grave was not mentally ill. He just had lost faith in the church hierarchy to hear him out, and he had moved on from traditional Adventism by embracing the Protestant Reformation in a way that other ex-Adventists did. Basically, he believed that Adventist theological innovations like the sanctuary were parasites on the theological purity of the Reformation and the message of justification by faith. In true Adventist style, in the most childlike way, Grave wrote about his trial, quote, They set out to give me a Bible study on the sanctuary. They tried in good Jesuitical fashion to split the difference between sin as guilt and condemnation and sin as record, end quote. Now, you can tell from Graves' tone that his relationship with Adventism had fundamentally changed. He sounded more like Walter Martin, even if he was technically still a member of the church. Grave was, quote, frustrated by a church which refuses to acknowledge that she has been wrong at any time in its history. The church was wrong 30 years ago, and I very believe is wrong now. In another 30 years, they will be where I am today, end quote. That prediction was wrong, of course, but 30 years after Grave was fired, that is, in the 1980s, there was an earthquake caused by another Australian in the way that he was treated by the church at his trial that shook the faith of thousands. The whole thing bothered Roy Anderson, who really was a pastor of pastors. Anderson wrote to the division, quote, one who passes through something like this needs the prayers of his brethren, and I am hoping that he will not be left as a wounded man to ponder the situation, but instead that he will be surrounded by the love and confidence of his brethren, end quote. Having been scolded, so to speak, Anderson was worried that the church might also turn its back on Grave. He made it clear that what happens to Grave will largely depend on how the church treats him in the months ahead. Yes, Anderson knew that Grave could be dogmatic about things, but... He said, quote, I found some on the other side of the argument betraying the same characteristics. When Paul said, beware of dogs, I think he must have included dogmatics, end quote. Nice. Nevertheless, as Anderson came to know more and more about Graves' theological positions, his letters increasingly took on the belated task of nudging Grave back to Adventist orthodoxy. But it was too late. 
In September of 1957, when Questions on Doctrine was being published, Clifford learned that Grave had left the Seventh-day Adventist Church and joined the Church of Christ. He preached his first sermon entitled, Why I Left the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and he would spend the rest of his days preaching against Seventh-day Adventism, and others followed. Now, the story of Robert Grave and Pastor Drain is important because it is the beginning of a series of events that would come to affect the entire Adventist world. Now, I say beginning, but you could talk about Wheeland and Shore, you could go back to the 1930s even, and talk about the similar sort of stuff being taught by the Tasmanian William Fletcher himself, what we might call an evangelical Adventist like Grave. If this was all there was to Grave's story, then it wouldn't be particularly remarkable, except that he was a conference president, and that's a big deal. But, as I said, it was the beginning of something. Because Grave's presidency of the Queensland Conference featured a feud with a prominent family living there. The Brinsmeads were among nine members of the SDA reform movement that left and joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1943. You might recall that the reform movement split from the Adventist Church in the First World War over the issue of military service and that Daniels was unable to broker peace with them after the war. Now, the reform movement, because it was focused on reforming Seventh-day Adventism, was both very Adventist theologically and also very critical of the parent church. It's not hard to imagine how the progressive grave and the deeply conservative Brinsmeads might not get along. Perhaps the cardinal sin Grave committed in this relationship was in disfellowshipping Robert Brinsmead's sister, Hope, and her husband for what Grave would later call, quote, the crime of believing differently from the Adventist church, end quote. Moving Grave to New Zealand, which is something Roy Allen Anderson argued against, didn't change anything. Young Robert Brinsmead was nevertheless baptized in 1953 and enrolled at Australasian Missionary College and well, became Avondale College, Avondale University today, while his family fought with Robert Grave. Robert Brinsmead excelled in college. He was confident and bright, a natural leader. He worked as a reader for Professor Nelson Burns, and occasionally Brinsmead would even teach a class for Burns. And it wasn't long before Robert Brinsmead had come across Wheedland and Shorts 1888 re-examined, or at least their argument that the church had failed to atone for missing the latter rain in 1888. And so, 22-year-old Robert Brinsmead came to see himself on a special mission to continue the work of Jones and Wagner and Wheeland in short, and call the Adventist church to repentance over 1888. In his first year as a college student, Brinsmead printed a document he called the Seal of the Holy Spirit, which argues that Sins must be blotted out of the heavenly sanctuary before we can experience the latter rain. In other words, repentance has to come first, then we get the latter rain. This is the whole enchilada of what these guys have been arguing about. We have to make it right. We have to repent. We have to say we're sorry for missing the boat in 1888, and then we can experience the latter rain. Now, that same year, he released another document all about the 1888 General Conference session. Now, Arthur Patrick was one of Brinsmead's fellow students back then, and he writes, quote, Bob was a superior student. Bob was passionate about his faith. At times his face would redden visibly and the veins in his neck would expand markedly as he engaged in vigorous discussion, end quote. Brinsmead was charismatic and because of his family's background in the reform movement, probably came across as a bit more theologically mature 
than his peers. While he was at Avondale, Brinsmead befriended another fellow student, Desmond Ford. Robert and Des would eat and take heights together. As I mentioned in the last episode, Edward Heppenstall was invited down for some guest lectures in the wake of the grave affair, and both Brinsmead and Ford took to Heppenstall, with Brinsmead joining a debate with another student over the covenants. Brinsmead naturally took Heppenstall's position on the covenants, which the professor had established at the 1952 Bible Conference. A couple of years later, Brinsmead published a third work, a commentary on Daniel chapter 11, which I know sounds so fascinating, but it really is interesting, because the audacity of a college student writing a commentary on Daniel 11 is just astounding to me. And to be fair, it certainly bears the immaturity of youth. It assumes too much, it simplifies too much, and it's way too confident. For instance, he wrote, quote, History must be seen as a divine lesson book, end quote. And while we should learn from history, uh, you know, I'm going to rah-rah that one, the longer you study history, the more you realize it isn't quite so neat and tidy as a divine lesson book. Still, Brinsmead raises some provocative insights that give us a hint at his gifts. For instance, he complains that 95% of Uriah Smith's Daniel and the Revelation gets bogged down, as he put it, in Greco-Roman military and political history, rather than focusing on the purpose of the vision, which is to reveal what would happen to God's people. Brinsmead goes on, quote, Surely one does not need Daniel 11 to teach him that history has been a gory and bloody spectacle. Commentators have left their readers wallowing around in the history of carnage without giving them an intelligent insight into the age-long conflict. What is the battle's concern? It has not been sufficiently emphasized that the real battle is for the minds of men. End quote. Now this leads him to his main point. Why has Jesus not come back since 1844? Oh man, isn't that like the quintessential Avenist question? Well, he says, quote, Why the delay that now extends to the fourth generation of Adventists? Upon what does the restoration of the sanctuary depend? It depends upon the restoration of the people. This is the theme of Daniel 10 to 12. So the focus of Daniel is not on telling us which empire will succeed another empire, but on what happens to God's people. And of course, Avenus saw themselves as God's people. Only when you realize that Daniel is about people and not kingdoms can you get to Brinsmead's goal in all of this, which he articulates thusly, quote, only the restoration of God's people to a state of absolute freedom from sin will make the restoration of the sanctuary a possibility. Only the restoration of the sanctuary will enable Jesus to become king. And only when he becomes king can the prayer be answered in Matthew 6, Your kingdom come. End quote. In other words, do you know why Jesus hasn't come back yet? Because his people are not absolutely free from sin. Brinsmead praised William Miller and James White for their work in understanding Daniel 11. He praised Uriah Smith for building on the foundation of William Miller and James White. But Adventists should not have stopped at Uriah Smith. He wrote, quote, The greatest tribute we can pay to our spiritual forefathers is to advance the knowledge of Bible prophecy, which they handed down to us, end quote. Brinsmead took it all a little too far for his superiors, however when he insisted that this beautiful land spoken of in Daniel 11 represents the Adventist church. He then proceeded to talk about how the king of the north, or the patriarchy as he understood it, would invade the beautiful land and corrupt many. In other words, the papacy, the Roman Catholic church, would invade the Adventist church and corrupt many people. This is why so many Adventists, he would argue, are spiritual Laodicea, to borrow a concept from Revelation 3. 
they have been enticed and overrun by the papacy. And what's more, this has happened because the leaders of the Adventist church are not what he would call true shepherds. Now, in reading it for myself, I, I don't take Brinsmead as intending any sharp thrusts at church leaders. He's simply trying to find the logical contours of his theory. He doesn't come anywhere close to naming names, for instance, but you'd have to be pretty obtuse not to see where this writing could lead, because it was written in the wake of questions and doctrine, and if Brinsmead didn't mean anything by it, others might very well take it and mean something by it. This commentary came from a class assignment, which ended up in the hands of Francis Clifford. Clifford, already in a witch-hunting mood because of drain and grave, suggested that the college president not let Brinsmead back to school. And that was all it took. Nelson Burns was given the displeasure of dropping the axe in a letter to Brinsmead, written December 7, 1958, three weeks before Bob Brinsmead's wedding, which, by the way, he had invited Professor Burns to attend. Oh, man, it's so awkward. <laughs> Burns basically just begins this letter saying, Thanks for the invite to your wedding. <laughs> Sorry I can't attend. Also, you're not welcome back at school. But he also added, speaking of Bob Brinsmead's views on Daniel 11, quote, Bob, they are very dangerous. If you believe and teach that the King of the North and the form of the papacy has already entered the remnant church, you are not in harmony with the SDA church, end quote. Nelson was appealing to reason. How could we graduate you and recommend you as a pastor if you think the Adventist church is corrupt? Brinsmead protested his innocence, of course, claiming he was just trying to continue the work of the pioneers. But Clifford was in no mood for it. What followed then were two years of Brinsmead taking his show on the road, dogged constantly by church disapproval. Yet, in the words of Milton Hook, quote, church authorities seemed unable to throw a telling theological punch, end quote, which would knock Brinsmead down. And this part of the record is still a little bit murky to me, but the church charged him with calling for an unauthorized camp meeting, as if Brinsmead hoped to fool members into attending and hearing his doctrine. Now, Brinsmead denied any such scheme and shot back that his church leaders were just trying to prevent good Adventists from gathering to study the Bible, which didn't seem like a very Protestant thing to do. Brinsmead's skill with the pen was one way he managed to stay ahead of the lawman. The term you used, he wrote to the conference president, quote, unauthorized meetings makes your letter read like a papal epistle, end quote. One point for Brinsmead. Bob and his brother John then went to New Zealand, apparently visiting churches and winning followers. He even went to some SDA reform churches <laughs> to win people. They were energetic, young, convicted, and let's face it, the 1950s were an opportune time to ding church leaders for being lethargic and bureaucratic, especially with the whole questions on doctrine thing. Those church leaders criticized Brinsmead for first not submitting his theological ideas to them for review first. You didn't have to agree, though, with Brinsmead's conservatism or Graves' progressivism to see that Clifford and his team were placing too much emphasis on denominational authority. Brinsmead, unlike Grave, had found an audience. Financially, he could also go it alone, or at least pretty close to it. The Brinsmead clan had been moving all around Australia, but they were no ordinary impoverished farmers. First trying sheep and wheat, they then moved and tried a dairy farm, then they moved and tried tulips and potatoes, the latter of which was so important that Bob's brother was given an exemption from World War II service in order to keep farming potatoes. After the war, they moved and began a banana plantation, and this really took off. 
As a teenager, Bob and his brother Lawrence bought their own farm and began growing sugarcane and bananas. It went so well that it started the migration of other farmers who moved to the area to try bananas too. These successful businesses enabled Bob to provide jobs for his followers and friends who feared losing denominational employment. At least that's how it happened in one case. Naturally, Al Hudson from the States picked up on Brinsmead's cause and gave him the same kind of print privileges he had given Andreas and, and offered to Wieland. Namely, reprinting his documents and keeping his name in Hudson's newsletter. When the General Conference published a 25-page teardown of Brinsmead's teaching, Hudson published Brinsmead's 50-page reply. Among those featured in Brinsmead's defense, Robert A. Grave. The two were on polar opposite sides. I mean, with Grave having left the church and now speaking out against it, what in the world did they have in common? Well, they both thought that the church structure was unbearably oppressive. Arthur Patrick lamented the whole affair. The way he saw it, both Robert Grave and Bob Brinsmead were asking some really interesting questions that the church as a whole needed to address. What exactly was the role of Ellen White's inspiration? How exactly do Adventists balance the issues of righteousness by faith and the common Adventist belief that the final generation needed to be perfect and sinless? Now, we've talked about some church leaders who didn't see it this way, who were quietly in private correspondence saying, we need to meet and talk about these things, but just nothing ever came out of it. Many church leaders, however, didn't want to talk about it, including Clifford in Australia, who saw these questions as threats. They should be submitted to the church first, he might say. But who was prepared to take them up? Who was going to call all the scholars together to consider them? That was above Clifford's pay grade, but what was within Clifford's pay grade was the ability to silence or attempt to silence those who rocked the boat. Church leaders paid lip service to the notion that new ideas were to be brought to the responsible leaders who would consider whether God was trying to teach the church something new. But those hearings were often where conviction went to die. The committees were not often theologically qualified to judge new ideas. There was seldom enough time set aside to even try and understand them. Gone were the dynamic days of Ellen White's prophetic gift, which could challenge the rigidity of church leaders. Gone were the days when the movement was advanced by theologically curious young people. The administrators had won. And of course, we should admit that there's a lot of good that comes from a well-run institution. After all, many of those theologically curious young people back in the day weren't getting paid regularly. And I don't know about you, but... I like getting paid. The problem, if I may add to Patrick's argument, was that there was nothing to keep the administrators in check. There was nothing that could seriously challenge them. And it's unclear if Bob Brinsmead was trying to start a movement to do just that, but he got one anyway. And soon enough, he had a name for that movement. He called it The Awakening. And Bob and John Brinsmead were about to take this show on the road again before the church could manage to catch them and bottle them up in Australia, that's right, my friends, Bob and John are going to America. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus history content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. 
Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>